word. Uh, what a, what a uh, blessing it is uh, to have the choir leading us in uh, worship, and thank you so much for your time, and thank you for that as well, Justin. And uh, I just want to say, uh, remind you that the choir is trying to help lead us in worship about once uh, a month, and the next time they'll be doing that is on Easter Sunday, uh, which is right around the corner, and so you need to be thinking about Easter Sunday. As believers, we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead every single Sunday, uh, but we are aware that our culture uh, is uh, receptive, focused in on, listening to what the church is saying on Easter Sunday. And I just want to encourage you uh, to invite your friends who might not uh, normally go to church to join you uh, for worship on Easter Sunday. And you might be surprised at their willingness to say yes. If you are visiting with us today, we are incredibly glad that you are here with us. And we would love to know you. I encourage you to stop by the welcome desk or one of the welcome tables on your way out this morning. Uh, or if you feel more comfortable, you can text the word connect uh, to the number that is on the screen and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. If you're joining us online for the first time, we'd still love to know who you are and you can text connect to that number and we will reach out to you. I also want to bring one more date to your attention that is special that is coming up and that is our serve day which is taking place on Saturday April the 2nd. Our hope is that as many of our church members are constantly engaged in serving uh, in our community, where we work, where we live, where we play. Um, however, we realize there's power uh, when we gather together in numbers uh, to serve, and we also hope that it might spring uh, some of us to continue to serve. And so uh, there is information about how you can uh, be a part of Serve Day on our website, and uh, there's opportunities for all ages and uh, all stages of life and uh, all uh, physical abilities to help out on that day, and we would love for you to be a part of that Serve Day on April 2nd. Well, I want to say thank you to Ward for reading our text uh, today. We are in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 28 through 34, and what Ward read uh, shows us Peter bringing up an issue that matters to most of us who are sincerely following Christ. The text tells us that Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, the language began to say indicates that this was not a one-sentence statement, but rather a sentiment that Peter is conveying in a conversation, an ongoing conversation that he's having with Jesus. Now, this, this statement that Peter makes and really question that Peter is asking uh, follows the encounter that he observes Jesus having with the rich young ruler. If you were with us last week, then you were here when we talked about that. This rich young ruler walks up to Jesus and, excuse me, he runs up to Jesus and he bows at him and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed must I do to be able to go to heaven? And Jesus talks to him about the commandments, about the law. And this young ruler says that he's kept them all. Now, we can argue about that, but he says he has. And so Jesus responds to him by saying, you lack one thing. Go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful, for he had many possessions, and he did not want to get rid of them. And then Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I presume then that Peter is trying to get a little assurance from Jesus. He wanted to hear, but you're okay, Peter. 
I wasn't talking about you. Peter wanted validation. He wanted assurance because Peter actually still had a boat, it would seem, because he was still fishing even after he started following Jesus. And Peter still had a house. The scripture tells us about his mother-in-law's house, which is likely where Peter lived. And Peter's wife was still with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5 shows us that. I'm not denying Peter's obedience to following Jesus, but I'm just saying he still had a lot of stuff. And so because he still had some stuff, he asked Jesus, hey, but we're following you, right? We've left everything and followed you. And his question is acceptable. Jesus does not rebuke him for asking this question. And, and Matthew actually gives us, Matthew's gospel gives us a little more clarity on the question that Peter is asking. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 says, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to this rich man, if you sell all your possessions and give to the poor, that you'll have treasure in heaven if you come follow me. And Peter says, so about this treasure in heaven, tell me a little more about this. I mean, we know it's good, but how good is it? And again, Jesus is not, he does not rebuke Peter for asking this question. So it's not wrong to think like Peter thinks. And what we see in our text is Jesus actually assures him. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So before I get to really what I think we need to do with this text, um, and I'm going to give us three things that I think we need to think on, I first wanna focus on what Jesus says right here. And I think there are four phrases that matter for Christ followers. There are four phrases that matter for Christ followers in this text. I'll begin with the first one. That is, for my sake and for the gospel. Jesus says, for my sake and for the gospel. You see, there are other reasons that people do godly things. There are other reasons that people do things that Christ has called us to do. Some, one reason that people do godly things is to get out of hell. They don't wanna go to the bad place. And so they believe by doing these things, I'll go to heaven and not hell. Another reason that people do godly things is to get rid of guilt. They have some guilt. Maybe it's given to them by a family member. Maybe it's this guilt. They don't know where it comes from. But they have some guilt for, for the things they've done or the things they are doing. And so they need to do some good things to make up for the bad things. And so by doing those good things, and maybe, maybe by even giving up some things for 40 days or something like that, they can get rid of the guilt that they have. Sometimes people do godly things because they believe it will give them status. It will give them status with someone. Maybe there's a person they want to impress or maybe there's a whole church they want to impress or a whole community of, of, of followers on social media they want to impress. And so by doing these good things, these godly things, 
they feel like it will give them that status. Or, or maybe it's because they believe, hey, I, I, I wanna earn, I wanna get um, good things coming my way. It's, it's, they subscribe to this kind of belief of karma. If I do these good things, these godly things, then I will, <coughs> excuse me, I will receive good things and bad things won't happen to me. But Jesus makes it clear what the motivation must be for the Christian, for his sake and for the gospel. For my sake, he says, and for the gospel. You see, when we sacrifice, it's not just this arbitrary sacrifice. I feel like a lot of people have read the Bible and they've almost kind of made, made it into this need to be communist or socialist or Marxist. And people who've turned this into Marxism just don't understand the Bible at all. Poor people are just as dead in their trespasses and sins. The only advantage they might have if there is one, is that they can take off the rich thing being a barrier. But they have all kinds of other barriers. And they have to worry about being just as dead in their sins and trespasses as the rich guy who's next to them. The call to follow Jesus isn't some generic call to nobility or to get rid of things. It's a call to worship. When we think about the word worship, we should think about a king. And we should think about someone bowing down before them in submission to them. And that's what God has called us to as believers is a life of worship where we are submitting to him. We are submitting to the king who is Jesus. And so Jesus says when he issues this call and this promise, he says, for my sake and for the gospel. The second phrase that I think matters to, to Christ followers in this text here is that Jesus says, will receive a hundredfold now in this time, a hundredfold now in this time. Now, there are two popular yet opposing, and I would also say yet incorrect views of Christianity. One is what has been labeled the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that if we follow Christ, that God will give us all the earthly things that we want. It's this idea that if we have faith, God will bring healing. It's this idea that if we are in line with Christ, then we will have wealth and we will have influence. And so everything we do for Christ is tied back to this earthly blessing that Christ gives us. And that is incorrect. It's not biblical. But there's also this other perspective that I think is in many ways a reaction to that. And we'll call that, because I don't know a word for it, the misery gospel. And that is kind of the idea that, okay, I'm following Christ. I'm going to be in heaven one day. So this life is awful. And I'm just going to be miserable. And I'm just gonna be unhappy because these people over here are living for earthly wealth and earthly treasure and I know my treasure is in heaven so I just constantly give up and give up and give up and I'm never going to be happy. And again, I would say these are opposing and yet incorrect views of Christianity. 
So what does Jesus mean then when Jesus says, we will receive a hundredfold now and this time, and he, and he talks about all these things. Here's what Christ means. What Jesus means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If in following Christ, you have to give up living near your mother and her affection and her concern, you get back 100 times the affection and the concern of Christ. If you give up your fellowship with your brothers and your sisters, you get back 100 times the fellowship that comes in Christ. If you give up the comfort that comes from being at home, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that Jesus owns every home. What Jesus is saying to us is this, I promise to work for you and to be for you, so much so that you will not be able to consider having sacrificed anything. You see, when we give to God, we say to the Lord, here's a percentage of my income, and I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to sacrifice this to you. And God does not necessarily give us back that 10% of our income or whatever it might be. But I've never met a believer who regrets doing it. Because what Christ does in our heart, in our lives, is far more valuable than what we have given up for him. When we serve, and it could be exhausting, and it could be time-consuming, what God does in us and for us is far more valuable than the time and the energy we spend serving him. And I'll tell you this, sometimes in service, I doubt that leadership of whatever organization or whoever it was I was serving was a good steward of my time, but I have not for one second ever believed God is not a good steward of my time. When we give up heartache and heartbreak for doing things for others, God's rewards are far more valuable than whatever loss we experienced. This is why historically so many missionaries when we think about them as people who have sacrificed greatly, do not consider it to be a sacrifice. My favorite quote that I quote all the time is by David Livingston, and he says, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Hudson Taylor, at the end of his 50 years of missionary service in China, said, I never once made a sacrifice. I. Campbell White with the layman's ministry movement said, fame, pleasure, riches are but husk and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Elizabeth Elliot, who went back to share the gospel with the very tribe that killed her husband and others, said the world looks for happiness through self-assertion. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. If a man will let himself be lost for my sake, 
Jesus said he will find his true self. But not only is it these missionaries over time who have experienced the rewards of sacrifice for Christ, but I felt compelled knowing what I was gonna talk about today to ask the question of the missionaries we directly support. JP and Megan Stokes, who have served the Lord in India and other places, and Laura Jones, who's in Uganda, and the Hamiltons, who are in Monterey, Mexico. And I asked them about this idea of sacrifice. And I wanna just take a few minutes, and I wanna read to you what they wrote back to me. I'll start with JP Stokes. He said this, my overarching thought is that while our time has included sacrifice, I seldom think of them as sacrifices. They're what the Lord has called us to. But amidst many trials and difficulties, he has been faithful to sustain us by his grace, and he is the one who will keep us. I think of a quote, I think, from Corey Ten Boom that says, you may not know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It is a difficulty to come to this point, but Jesus is there and he is faithful to those he has called and more than worthy of any earthly sacrifice we make. I think again of Romans 8.18, these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits. Even in this lifetime though, I think there is a richness to the life which God has called us. We all know and believe that when God adopts us as sons, he adopts us into a family with brothers and sisters made up of all true believers worldwide. However, as you know, knowing that and experiencing it are two different things. When we think about the church in India or in Nepal or Bhutan or the UAE, it isn't an abstract idea, but we think of names and faces, brothers and sisters who have become dear friends. We have also gotten to learn to worship God and study his word in other languages. And as we meditate on these same truths with new words and a new cultural perspective, there's an added depth to our understanding and appreciation for God and his word. We also have the benefit of living in a place which is much more similar culturally and technologically to the ancient Near East than the modern U.S. is, and all of this makes serving that we do an immense privilege. I'll be quick to point out, though, that workers are not some special class of Christian to whom this applies, but what God has called us to here, he has called everyone to wherever they are. I think we see the same thing mirrored in Luke 14, 26. The point is not actually in hating your parents or leaving your place, but living as you really are, dead to sin, but alive to God. Slaves of righteousness rather than slaves to sin. No longer living for myself and my desires and my comforts, but living in every aspect of life to bring God glory. When you live like that, it doesn't matter if you're in Niceville or North Korea, you can be sure these promises are yours in Christ. The Hamiltons, when asked this, they responded in this way, Our experiences of sacrifice and reward is not either or, it's both and. Obeying our call to serve in God's kingdom away from our home and culture is both a sacrifice and a reward. The feelings of loss we experience make us aware of the sacrifice. Aside from the heavenly reward we eagerly look forward to, we presently experience the reward of seeing God work in our midst, restoring hope to the children and families we serve. The one does not negate the other because in God's economy, one almost always never comes without the other. If anything, we find that each one only enriches the other. In Jesus' earthly life, he did not run from or complain about sacrifice, but neither did he deny it. He wept, he cried out, he pleaded in prayer, and he persevered because he knew the truth of what he shared with his disciples. 
The sacrifice is hard, the pain of loss is undeniable, and even more so, the reward is rich. The joy of which will be just as undeniable because anytime we lose something for his sake, we are gaining so much more than we can realize. It is like God is bad at math. He consistently tells us that one minus, minus one equals 100, and yet that is exactly how it adds up. And Laura Jones said, every day God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks us what it is he's made us to love, what it is that captures our attention, what feeds that deep indescribable need of our souls to experience the riches of his world he made, and then leaning over us, he whispers, let's go do that together. I read this quote from Bob Goff years ago when I first read his book called Love Does. These words have stayed with me for years more than most other things I've read since then, and it reminds me so much of this passage of scripture in Mark. There's nothing that is extra special, extra sacrificial, or extra holy about me serving the Lord in Uganda. It's simply me trying to follow Jesus. It just happened to be on the other side of the world. When I meditate on that deep, indescribable need of my soul, when I think of experiencing the richness of the world and the people that he made, everything that falls into that is kind of a no-brainer. Do I wish that Uganda was geographically closer to my family and friends? Of course. Does that distance dissuade me from making that choice and going? Absolutely not. God formed my heart and soul to love kids and passionately chase after the desire I have to see them loved, valued, and educated. When I know that this is what I was created for, when I know that the Lord intimately and intentionally formed my heart to love this specific group of children, that yes comes without hesitation. Lately, I've been thinking of it as another form of praise to use the specific passions he's placed in, to glorify, in me to glorify him and make his kingdom known wherever that may be. What could possibly be more rewarding and joyful than that? You see, it is not a sacrifice to give up anything for God. And God rewards us a hundredfold in Christ in this life. The third phrase I would like us to see from this text that I think matters to us, and I'll talk about this one quickly, is when, he, when Jesus says, with persecutions. If you're following him, expect trials. Expect challenges. And even expect persecution. I would say to you, Christian, if you never experienced this, then are you really following Christ? If your life is completely comfortable and completely revolved around you and your family and your children, and there's never the pain of serving others and ministering to others, are you really following Christ? Because it doesn't seem to be a life that's compatible with what he said our life will be and what he has called us to. And the fourth phrase that I think matters from this text is when Jesus says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Yes, Christ will reward us in this life, but not only that, Christian, but in the age to come, we will receive eternal life. It's a good decision to give up things in this life for eternal life. The rich man was not willing to give up his status and his possessions to do this, but yet Jesus says to the disciples, Matthew tells us in chapter 19, verse 28, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now this probably isn't literal to the 12 because I don't think Judas is on one of those thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But throughout scripture, what we know is that there's a promise of authority that is given to believers. Jesus said in our text today in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. You have the disciples who see this rich man and he's first by many accounts. He has status, he has rank. And yet Jesus says there are many who are first that will be last and last will be first. The disciples would struggle with this though and they would even begin to ask the question, who's the greatest? We talked about that a few weeks ago and we'll talk about that again next week. But right after this account, Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable that Matthew writes down that Mark does not write down. And Matthew writes of it in Matthew chapter 20, verse one through 16. And I think this parable is important for us understanding what the text we're reading, what Jesus is trying to tell us today. And so I wanna read that now. Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 20, verse one through 16. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So this master hires these guys in the morning to go and work a day's wages, what's acceptable for him that day. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So he, he needed some more people to work, so at about three hours later, he asked some more people to work. Verse five says, so they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. At that beginning of the morning, three hours later, six hours later, nine hours later, he's asking people to work for him. And then about the 11th hour, which means they probably have about a hours of work to do, he went out and found, the other, found others standing and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So he paid these guys for one hour of work or so, a full day's wages. Verse 10 says, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more because they had worked all day. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I think the challenge we have in embracing this idea of sacrificing for God, of leaving things for God and following him, really centers around this idea that God is the master. Jesus is telling the story, God is the master. And I think we have a problem with the idea of God as the master because of our sinful view of autonomy and authority. Perhaps part of the reason we view 
God the way we view God or challenged are challenged to view him as master is because things we have experienced from failed earthly authority. But also I would contend that a big part of the reason is we struggle because of the sin that's in our heart and how we approach authority. And we're gonna talk more about this as we move forward in the Gospel of Mark into our next series, which begins in two weeks. We titled, By What Authority? But what I have noticed is that people like God in the garage and in the kitchen and on our front door, but not on the throne. We like God in the garage fixing things for us. We like God in the kitchen providing for us. And we like God on our front door protecting us. But we don't necessarily like God on the throne ruling over us. And so what I want to close our time with are three things to dwell on if you sincerely want to be last temporally and first eternally. If you really want to say, I trust God and his reward, and I want to live for him and experience the joy that comes from following him. Here are the three things I would say. First is this. He isn't God if he isn't on the throne. He isn't God if he isn't on the throne. You worship him and he should not be worshiped if he is not on the throne. Charles Spurgeon in a sermon on a text related to this said this, we must assume one thing, certain, namely that all blessings are gifts and that we have no claim to them by our own merit. This I think every considerate mind will grant. And this being admitted, we shall endeavor to show that he has a right seeing they are his own, to do what he wills with them, to withhold them wholly as he pleaseth, to distribute them all if he chooseth, to give to some and not to others, to give to none or to give to all, just as seemeth good in his sight. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? It all belongs to him. And until we recognize that, that it is his breath in our lungs that we pour back. We may struggle with the reality of living our lives, whether it comes to finances, times, direction of our family, how we plug into a church, for him. But it's all his anyway. And the reason we love God is because he's on the throne and he's in the garage and he's in the kitchen and he's on the front door for us, and what a joy that is. And what you need to understand is this. If he's not on the throne, then the death of a man who dies for his people and stays dead is noble, and it's inspiring, but it's not redeeming, and it's not saving. But you see, Jesus is on the throne. And so he didn't just die a noble death for us. He rose from the grave, defeating death because he has all authority. And that's why we worship him. He isn't God if he isn't on the throne. The second thing that I hope you will dwell on is this. Life 
is not fair. And that is ultimately a good thing. In this parable, the master called each of these workers to work for him. The master has called you. You could have stayed in the marketplace. You could have been the last called. But no matter what, he called you. It is grace that he calls you. If you grew up in the church with godly parents and you never even really questioned if Jesus is the Lord and you love him still today, it is God's grace on your life. If friends invited you to youth group when you were in high school and you surrendered your life to him, it is God's grace on your life. If you were in college and you met some believers who invited you into their fellowship and you came to see who Jesus was, it is God's grace on your life. If you married a spouse who had strong faith and it was them that inspired you to realize you didn't really live for God and you surrendered your life to God, it is God's grace that he called you. If you were invited by friends as you were older in life to church and you finally woke up to the fact that you aren't living for God and you surrendered to him, it is God's grace. And if you are dying on your deathbed and you realize you've wasted all of your earthly life, but the treasures of Christ are still available to you, it is God's grace that he has called you. And when you understand this and you understand how God sees you, then you have no right and no desire to say it is not fair what God does because being a Christian is not about getting what we deserve. Because if my life was about getting what I deserve, then I would be headed straight to hell. But the beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair and life is unfair, but in God's holiness and justness, he gave a propitiation, a sacrifice for my sins that Christ did not deserve so that I would not have the death that I deserve and I can be his forever. In our house, you are not allowed to say that is not fair because life is not fair and the beauty of life not being fair is that God would call you his son and daughter. We must dwell on that every day of our life. And the last thing I'll say is this. The first, the first became last so that we would be first. When you struggle with sacrifice and what God has for you, may you remember Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant and was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Our text today closes with these words in 32, verse 32 to 34. When they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who were followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. When we understand the riches we have in Christ, we understand why anything we would give up for Christ is not a sacrifice. And we cannot question that God is for us and that God doesn't think that the eternal life to come is 
worth it because of what Christ has done for us. And that's the fuel. That's what motivates us. I've shared this story before, but it's been a little while and I just, it continues to just resonate with me. So a few years ago, I was traveling on I-10 coming from Tallahassee and um, uh, I didn't have Bluetooth in my car and praise Jesus for Bluetooth. I don't know if we're allowed to praise him for that, but I do. And so I would be so bored, you know, because you're not supposed to text and drive and all that. So I'd be so bored driving around the panhandle and you got to, you know, skim, skim through stations, CD players broke in my car, anyway. And I came across this station coming back from Tallahassee because it was one of like three stations, country music, which I don't like, sorry. And this country preacher, and I'm like, well, I'm curious what he's talking about because he's screaming, hooting, hollering, you know, all this. And, and he begins to talk about... Um, it's kind of just talking about people not living the way they should and really berating them. And, and then he, he, he talks about the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he, he's talking about how there's debate as whether or not Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and uh, Mark McGuire and all these people that use steroids should be in the Hall of Fame. And he said, you know, if they are ever let in the Hall of Fame, then there needs to be an asterisk by their name, you know, because they, they, they cheated. And he said, and you see, this is really how he was talking, so I'm not just making some voice. <laughs> You see, that's how a bunch of you are. You're living it up, you know, chasing skirts and all that. Which, why, why do people still say that? But anyway, all that stuff. And he's just listing basically all these easy cultural sins to talk about. And he says, if you get to heaven, there's gonna be an asterisk by your name. And then he kind of closes up. And I was like, yeah. There's gonna be an asterisk next to every single one of our names and that asterisk is the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not a single one of us who deserve the grace of God, but he has given it to us. And the life of the Christian is lived in response to that. And what you have done for me, Christ, anything I would give you is not a sacrifice. And not only that, but when we begin to follow him, we experience the riches of Christ Jesus in a way that this world could never give us. May we walk in that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the grace of Christ, and we are tempted to think that following you is hard, that it is not worth it. May we treasure the cross. May we treasure the resurrection. And God, will your Holy Spirit minister to our souls. God, I pray for the people in this room that we would not love the things of this world and the status that this world can give us more than we love you. And Lord, God, may we be willing to let go of everything knowing that you are enough for us. You are the reward. And you are why we live. All glory be to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.